Good morning, church. There's something sweeter about uh, worship on a communion Sunday than I think any other Sunday. And I don't think that's by accident. I think when our focus is on the Son of God, on Jesus Christ, that's where it's supposed to be. And when we focus on him, when he's the center of attention, one of our deacons, Pete, reminded me this morning, if he be lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. He is the center of attention. And I just praise God uh, for the worship at this church. I love worshiping with this church. I love this church. I love all of you. Uh, you've all been such just a blessing to us. I mean, we're kind of coming up on a two-year mark here in a couple of months. And I had a meeting with a pastor friend of mine this past week. You know, one of the first questions that they'll ask me, usually if I meet with an old friend, is, how's the new church? And I love being asked that question because I just get to brag on you all the time to people that ask. This church is awesome. I love this church. There, I've never been a part of a more loving church. I love your passion to worship Christ and to serve his people. Uh, again, we had a memorial that we went to this week. Uh, one of Rhonda's uncles passed away who was a believer, so it was bittersweet. But again, the common question from family is, oh, how's the new church? And it's, we just get to say, like, we love it. We love it. They just, they've loved us so well, and they've been such a great example to us of, of serving the Lord and serving one another. And that's really what this message is about, this chapter is about. It's all of the gifts that God gives the church and how they all contribute together for the common good to glorify his son. I mean, when people ask, I get to talk about Candy Kingdom and how this church ministers to 2,000 kids that come through the doors in one night. And you think about all the different gifts that are involved in putting on something like that. I mean, there's like 75,000 pieces of candy that each piece of candy gets a sticker of a Bible verse attached to it. And then each child that comes through gets all of these different pieces of candy. They get the gospel in their little bag that they're going to take home. You think about all of you that serve at a night like that, over 150 people serving on that particular night. Not to mention all the things that go on behind the scenes and all the planning that goes into that. I mean, I can't do that. I couldn't put that on. But it's the gifts that Christ gives his body that enable a church to do the things that this church does. Or think about Christmas and Hercules. A thousand people came through the doors that evening. Or think about two Christian clubs, one at John Sweat and one at Hercules High. A Dorcas and a Nathania taking up those ministries to be a blessing, to be an avenue of God's salvation going into the high schools in our area. There's people that go to prison ministry every Friday night and share the gospel with those in prison. We support missionaries. We do evangelism. We have people that not only do evangelism, but are passionate about equipping one another to do evangelism. We have this meet and greet with the pastors and leaders that's going to come up next Sunday. And I was hoping that, like, you know, it'd be nice if we could kind of make it special some way, but it's like, I don't have, I'm not, I'm not a good baker or a cook or anything like that. And then God puts it on the heart of two sisters in this church to want to take that up and to provide just a special kind of refreshment and snacks for that meeting. Just again, example after example of all the gifts of the body of Christ working together. And how about that announcement this morning? I mean, I can't think of a more beautiful or gifted announcer than the one that we had this morning. Again, all the gifts of this church on display. And what happens? People are equipped and edified, and Christ is glorified. 
So Paul's continuing his instructions. He's really in this section from 11 all the way through 14, where Paul's talking about what is worship supposed to look like in the church. And on the one hand, he's encouraged because the church is trying to do the right things. But on another hand, he's a little discouraged because they're kind of doing the right things in the wrong way. Right? We looked at communion a couple weeks ago. Now, it's good that the church is celebrating communion, and they were. They were coming together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But what was happening? There was division and rivalry and have and have-nots, people getting drunk, people overeating, some people not getting enough. And what was supposed to be a celebration of our Savior, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto and grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant turns into just this selfish free-for-all and so here he turns his attention in this chapter to spiritual gifts now this church in corinth they were using their gifts and they had a lot of gifts that were on display but again they were tending to use them in the wrong way gifts are meant to unify us together and gifts are meant to help us minister to one another and yet, how were they using their gifts? Well, they were like, well, here's the hierarchy of gifts, and I have this one. That's the, that's the top one. You, me, don't have that one yet, so you're, you're a subpar Christian. And the gifts became this source of, like again, rivalry and division when they're supposed to be a source of beautiful unity. Some people might have had the idea that they are God's gift to the church. And in fact, there is actually some truth in that. If you are a Christian, you are God's gift to the church. But rather than a source of pride, that should be a source of great humility and great appreciation for everyone else who is also God's gift to the church. And so I want each of us, that's what I want us to come away with, that you would know and believe and act on the fact that you are God's gift to the church. Each of you, individually, not just sort of collectively, but each of you is God's gift, not only to the church in general, but to this church in particular. Think about this. God chose you before the foundation of the world. He sent his son to pay for your sins on the cross. And the Spirit has now given you a gift that you're to use in this church for the good of the whole body. If you are a Christian, you have a gift and you are a gift to this church. He saved you and gifted you and placed you in this particular church to be a gift for the rest of us. And we all are a gift for you. So let's pray, and then we'll look through this chapter. Father, we pray that you would feed us through your word. You fed us already so richly through communion and through worship. Who are we that you would choose us and that you would send a son and that he would go and he would live a perfect life and die a horrendous death for us. We know us. We're worse than we even think. 
And yet that didn't stop you from reconciling us to yourself through the cost of your son. And we are forever grateful, but we know that it doesn't end with salvation. It's not just that you wipe the slate clean and now we just kick our feet up until we get to heaven. No, your salvation is even more intentional than that. Your spirit, once saved, gives us a particular gift to be used for the good of the body. And it's no accident that we find ourselves in these four walls because you place the people that you want in the churches you want with the gifts you give so that all would be able to serve you and to serve one another. So encourage us with these truths this morning. For those that are serving, I pray that you just give them a greater appreciation and just continue to empower them and give them joy in all their service. For those that aren't serving, maybe it's because they just never realize that they have a gift. I pray that you'd remind them through this passage that you have gifted each one of us and that we all have a gift to be used in for the good of your body. And maybe there are those that are serving because they've been distracted, not serving, because they've been distracted by other things or maybe just out of laziness. And I pray that you would stir them to want to serve again, to use the gifts that you've given them. They'll find no greater joy in life than to use the gifts you've given to honor you and to encourage your people. So do your work through your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So you can think of chapter 12 sort of as, you know, Paul's handbook on spiritual gifts. This is your guide to using your gifts that God has given you. First, you want to use your gifts? Stay focused on Christ. Stay focused on Jesus. Look at verses 1 to 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So Paul has a familiar phrase at the beginning of this chapter. You see it in a few other chapters in 1 Corinthians. He says, now concerning. And this was probably because the church in Corinth was writing to Paul, and they were asking Paul, like, you know, what are we supposed to do with these spiritual gifts? Uh, we've, you know, we come out of a pagan background. We've seen kind of pagan worship. And sometimes pagan worship looks a little bit like some of the gifts we even see here. In pagan worship, it wouldn't be rare or unexpected to see somebody speaking in tongues, maybe saying things in, you know, language and syllables that they don't know. It wouldn't be rare, again, to maybe see someone be healed, whether that was legitimate or not. And so you have all these things going on in pagan worship, and now you seem to have similar things happening in the church. And so people's question is, so what's legit? What's real? How can we tell what's like a real spirituality and what are like all the false spiritualities that we've seen? And so Paul gives the true test of all spirituality. What does it make of Jesus? This is the biggest test of all spirituality. Who is Jesus? Is the focus on Jesus? He says all pagan worship will eventually lead you astray 
and basically communicate, maybe not through explicit words, but basically it's going to communicate that Jesus is a curse. Jesus doesn't have value. You don't need Jesus. When all true spirituality will always lead you into a greater and greater appreciation of the fact that Jesus is Lord. It's all about Jesus. Your life is designed to be centered on Jesus. Not on a particular spiritual gift. Not even on the Holy Spirit. Your life is designed to be focused on Christ. And actually, if you think about God, the Father, and the Spirit, both of them want you focused on the Son. Let's look at this. Go to John chapter 16. We'll look at the Holy Spirit first. John 16. John 16, verse 13. Jesus says this, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now here's the Spirit's ministry, verse 14. This is what the Holy Spirit's all about. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What does the Spirit want to do in your life? He wants to shine the spotlight on Jesus. Right? We had our soloist up here, and right, the spotlight goes right to the soloist. You can think of this is what the Holy Spirit wants. Spotlight on Jesus. That's what a Spirit, Holy Spirit ministry looks like. The focus stays on Jesus. The Spirit of God wants Christ to be the center of attention. And this is actually true of the Father as well. Look at Isaiah chapter 42. Just one example, Isaiah 42. This is, these are words of the Father. Look what he says. Behold my servant. What does behold mean? Look, look at my servant. Get your eyes off of everything else. Look at my servant. What does he say? Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. In a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. What's the father saying? Look at my son. Look at him. When you're like this twig that's about to break, he's not going to break you. When you're a candle who's about to go out, he's not going to extinguish you. Look at my son. And then we see this in the gospel. When Christ comes to earth, what does the father say at his baptism? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit comes down on him. When he's transfigured on the mountain, what does the Father say? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Right? The Father is focused on, he wants you focused on the Son. The Father wants Jesus to be the center of attention in your life. Why? Because Jesus does everything. Seeing Jesus changes everything. 
in the Sunday school class we're doing at 9 o'clock called Growing in Christ, the first lesson was all about just keep your focus on Jesus. He does it all. I mean, think about this. How are you saved? You see Jesus. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Right? So when you're an unbeliever, you're blind. You don't see something. What is it that you don't see? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When you're not a believer, there's something you don't see. What is, you don't see the glory of Christ. You don't see him. And so how does God save you? Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is salvation? It's God removing the blindness to, letting, to let you see the Son and when you see his son, you are forever changed. That's salvation. Now, how about growth? How do we grow? It's the same thing. Paul says earlier in 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, the glory of Christ, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How are we transformed? How do we grow as Christians? He says, by beholding the glory of the Son, you become like him. How about strength? Where do you find the strength that you need to go on each day? Paul writes to Timothy at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry. He's passing the baton. How is Timothy going to be able to do everything that God's calling him to do? He tells Timothy this, be strong in the grace of that is in Christ Jesus. Where are you going to get the strength to carry on? From Jesus. How about help? You need help? You need mercy? Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4.14. 4, Where are you going to find the help you need to get through this life? The writer of Hebrews says this, 4.14. 14, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Where do we go when we need grace and mercy to help in time of need? We go to Christ. We go to our compassionate high priest. And then at the end of it all, who will finally do away with this body of sin and glorify us? 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. How are we transformed? We see Christ. How are you saved? You look to Jesus. How do you grow? You look to Jesus. 
Where do you find strength? You look to Jesus. Where do you find help? You look to Jesus. Where, where do you find yourself glorified in his presence? You look to Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. True spirituality is Christ-centered. It's always focused on the Son. And that's what ministry is all to be about. Your life is all to be revolving around Jesus. And so Paul says back in chapter 12, verse 1, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. I don't want you to be uninformed. Because there's a tendency for anything and anyone to draw you away from a focus on Jesus, especially spiritual gifts. Many of you maybe have been part of churches where almost like gifts were the center of attention. Tongues. Hey, have you, are you speaking in tongues yet? If you're not, I mean, I'm not even sure you're a Christian. But what ends up happening? Tongues becomes the center of attention. Or miracles, or prophecy, or healing becomes the center of attention. And it draws the focus away from Christ. All of these gifts are meant to point us to Christ. They're not ends of themselves. They're signs pointing us to Christ. Our family went to Disneyland not too long ago, and it was amazing. But we didn't stop when we got to the sign that says, Welcome to Disneyland. And we didn't think, wow, here we are. We arrived. We're at the sign that says, Welcome to Disneyland. No, what did we do? We went into Disneyland. We did what the sign wanted us to do. Go to Disneyland. So don't focus on the gifts. Focus on Christ. Use your gifts to honor Christ. Now, true Christ-centeredness will also always be others-centeredness. Because think about it. If you're looking at Christ, what are you seeing? You're seeing the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what happens to you as you look at him? You become focused on not being served, but on serving. Or you see the one who says, love one another the way that I have loved you. And you're like, I want to love like that. I mean, my love is so fickle. I have a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of love. But he loved me when I was his enemy. I want to be like him. When you focus on Christ, you begin to change. That's exactly what happens. So use your gifts the way God intended, secondly. Use your gifts the way that God intended. Look at verses 4 through 11. Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one in the same Spirit who apportions to each individually as he wills. There's a few things to take away from this section. The first is this. If you are a Christian, you have a gift. Period. Right? I mean, there's no class of Christians that don't have a gift. 
I mean, look what he says at the end of verse 6. The same God who empowers them all in everyone. Beginning of verse 7. To each one is given. Look at the end of verse 11. By one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually. You, if you're a Christian, you have a gift for the good of this body. And it's a very intentional gift, right? I mean, it talks about throughout this passage how God is doing this, how he's arranging the body just the way that he wants it. So when you consider your salvation, think about this. God wasn't just concerned with you not having to pay for your sins. Of course, that is a concern, and you're not going to have to pay for your sins. But even more than that, when God saved you, he wiped the slate clean, but he also said, I'm going to change your selfish heart to give you a selfless servant's heart. And now my spirit is going to give you a particular gift. And my son is going to put you in a particular ministry where you can use that gift. And I'm going to empower you to use that gift in a way that benefits the entire body. I mean, that's what God was doing when he saved you. Not just, okay, now he's not going to hell, case closed. No, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to put you in a particular church and give you a particular gift that you're going to use in a particular ministry so that the whole church is built up. Valley Bible Church needs you. And not just you generally, each individual. We need each of you to be a part of this body. And you need every other part of this body for you. Right? There's great diversity. There's all kinds of different gifts, and yet there's great unity because they're all being used together. I mean, think about this. I love the end of verse 6 where it says that it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. I think sometimes we think like, well, I'm, I'm a nobody. I mean, what do I have to offer the church? Well, like me, in and of yourself, not a whole lot. But if you have a gift from the Holy Spirit and you're placed in a particular way to use that gift by the Son and God's going to empower that gift, then you can do a lot for this church. You can change this church and you will change this church. Right? It says God powerfully works, empowers them all in everyone. When you use your spirit-given gift in the ministry Christ appoints you to, God will work powerfully through you. Guaranteed. That's what this is saying. You have a gift, and you can use your gift, and God will use you for the good of everyone else. So the question is, what's the condition of your gift right now? Is it still in shrink wrap? Right? Brand new. Check out this gift. Never been used. Not once. It's in mint condition. Right? Sometimes we're like the 40-year-old nerd who lives in his parents' basement, and he buys toys. He doesn't buy them to do anything with them. He buys them to keep them in the box and then put them on a shelf, and that's what he does with them. It's like, no, that toy was designed to be enjoyed and used, not sit on a shelf. And that's how we use our, sometimes that's how Christians are with their spiritual gifts. If you're here, you have a gift. 
Have you been using it? Or is it still in shrink wrap? Right? God wants our gifts to be heavily used. Right? No secondhand market, you know, for our spiritual gifts. He wants them in tatters at the end of our lives. I mean, I think of our pastor Phil, and I mean, his voice is literally, I mean, in tatters because he's used his gift so much. And he continues to do it, even with his voice not being as strong as he was. But what an example. Like, that's how we want to get to heaven. Like, where I can, I have nothing left because I used it all for the good of the body and the glory of Christ. So you have a gift. Secondly, to notice in this, is that God himself is a reflection of unity and diversity. Look at verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all. So each member here of the Godhead is represented, right? You have a Spirit who's giving gifts. You have a Son who's sort of arranging those gifts into particular services and ministries, and then you have a father who empowers the entire process. And that's a beautiful thing. And there's no sense of inferiority or superiority in God. Like the Spirit's not saying like, man, why do I only have to give the gifts? It sure would be nice to arrange those gifts in a particular church. But no, the Son has to do that. Right? And the Son's not saying like, man, why do I have to just arrange these gifts? Why can't I be like the Father who empowers them all? In everything. It's like, no, there's nothing like that in God. Every member of the Trinity is delighted to play the role that, that, that they have. There's no jockeying for position. They each love to play their part. And that's how God wants his church to be. No jockeying for position. No thinking like, well, why do I have to do this? And someone else does this. Or why don't I have that gift? It's like, no, we all have a gift that God has given us to be used for the good of the body. Unity and diversity. Paul then goes on to lay out some particular gifts in verses 8 through 11. Now, of course, there's the big overarching question hanging over some of our heads, which is, are these gifts all for today? And that's an important question, and I'll touch on it a little bit, but I can't be exhaustive on the topic. But I do think Paul lists the gifts he does in this section because these are the gifts that were happening in Corinth. It's not that he's laying this out as an exhaustive list of all the spiritual gifts. And I don't think he's even laying this out as like, these are the ones that you're to choose from. I think he's talking about these particular ones because this church in Corinth was exercising these particular gifts. So that impacts, you know, our understanding of are these gifts also for today? My short answer is, I don't think all of these gifts are for today. And I'll take you to one passage to look at, to consider that question. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 4. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, he's talking about kind of the Old Testament there, 
how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So he's talking about new covenant, right? Christ has come. He's laid down his life for us. He's raised from the dead. He's ascended to the Father. The Spirit's at work. New covenant, truth. That's what we have, a great salvation. And then look what he says. It was declared, this salvation, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to, to us, by those who heard. Now verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You catch what he's saying. The writer of Hebrews is saying that God used specific gifts at a specific time for a specific purpose. The gospel was just going out. People around the world were hearing now that God has come in the Son, and he's laid down his life on the cross, and salvation is possible through Jesus. And so God, wanting to authenticate that message as it went out into the world, bore witness to it with signs and wonders and healings and by various gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the gifts that were happening in Corinth were those kinds of gifts. Why? Because this is the, when the foundation of the church is being built. God's authenticating his message through the use of gifts like these. But now, his message has been authenticated, and we have it right here. So if we have his authentic message, then we are no longer in need of these authenticating gifts. And that's kind of my short answer. We could talk a lot more about that, but a couple other things to consider. Are these gifts for today? 1 Corinthians was written in 53 or 54 AD, so relatively early of the letters that were written. And Paul mentions prophecy and tongues and miracles and healings and those kinds of things. Romans was written just three or four years later. He still mentions prophecy when he talks about spiritual gifts, but he doesn't mention tongues, miracles, or healings. In fact, after this, there's really no mention of tongues in the rest of Scripture. Ephesians was written in 60 to 62 AD, so a couple more years later, and Paul says this in Ephesians 2.20, the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So prophecy, prophets, along with the apostles, were the foundation of the church. That foundation has been laid. We're not building foundation anymore. We're building on top of that established foundation. So the gift of prophecy is no longer necessary. So I don't think that these gifts are gifts that we will necessarily experience today. Yet, at the same time, can God heal someone? Of course God can heal someone. But do people possess the gift of healing, like Paul, where you could put your hand on someone and say, get up and walk? I don't think that gift is still happening today. Likewise, is God still performing miracles today? Absolutely. Every time someone puts their faith in Christ, it's a miracle. But does someone possess the gift of miracles? A person possess that gift, where they can go around doing miraculous things? Again, I would say no. That was a gift that authenticated the message. Now that the message is authenticated, we no longer have a need for those gifts. Now again, we could say a lot more. If you want to talk about it more, we can grab coffee and discuss it further. But two that stand out in this list, of course, are prophecy and tongues. 
And I, even if, we're, if we set aside the question of do those gifts continue today, I think it's important to remember what exactly were those gifts when they were happening. Prophecy in Scripture has always been receiving direct new revelation from God. Whether audibly or through a vision or dream, God telling somebody something that they would not have otherwise known. When people talk about prophecy today, that is not at all what they're talking about. A lot of times, prophecy today is, I need someone to tell me, like, who am I going to marry? Or what college am I going to go to? And look at, look at Jeremiah 23. Because God's people have always known the reality of false prophets. People that say they hear from God, but they really haven't. Jeremiah 23, verse 16. Jeremiah says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it'll be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say no disaster shall come upon you. So from Old Testament times, there's always been the reality that there are people that claim to be prophets, but what do they really do? They tell you things from their own minds, not from the Lord. And basically, they just tell you what you want to hear. You're not serving the Lord? No problem. It's going to go well with you. You despise the word of the Lord? No disaster will come upon you. Like, that's what you want to hear. That's why the people go to these prophets, tell me what I want to hear. There's no examples in Scripture of, like, the average Joe going to a prophet and asking, like, hey, is so-and-so going to make it through this situation? Or who am I going to marry? Like, that doesn't happen. That's not prophecy. That's fortune-telling. I googled it this week. I looked at online prophet, and I found Prophet Kyle online. And Prophet Kyle only charges $80 for a 30-minute session, by the way. But here's what Prophet Kyle has to say on his website. God has been showing me clearly that the single best way to experience breakthrough is to develop a relationship with a prophet. Often, our failure to advance in our finances, our healing, our relationships, so I need someone to tell me that I'm going to get rich, I'm going to marry the person I want to marry, and I'm going to be healed. The reason I don't have those things is because, he says, we do not have a relationship with a prophet. So for $80, you can have a relationship with a prophet, and you'll find breakthrough in every area of your life that you want. Now, I'll give it to Kyle. The single best way to see breakthrough is to develop a relationship with a prophet, but not just any prophet, the prophet, Jesus Christ. He's the center of attention. He helps you, right? Not a prophet. A prophet doesn't do anything. All a prophet can do is tell, even if it was happening, all they could do is tell you what God said. Christ is the center of attention. So one other controversial gift that we have here is tongues. And it's completely intentional on Paul's part to put that last because they are going crazy about tongues. That is like the gift. If you're in the church of Corinth, if you want to be in the haves and not the have-nots, you need to speak in tongues. Which Paul finds, I think, incredibly ironic because the only gift that benefits no one, if no one can interpret it, 
is tongues. You're obsessed with the gift that benefits nobody. Anyway, tongues in Scripture are always known languages. Every occurrence you have of tongues in Scripture are known human languages. No ecstatic speech, no people saying things that nobody understands. In fact, when you go two chapters away from now, chapter 14, Paul is going to say you shouldn't even exercise the gift of tongues unless you have an interpreter. Another word for interpreter? Translator. I mean, look at Acts 2. It's an example. People are hearing human languages. So it's a gift. Those people were speaking languages they didn't know, but they weren't gibberish. They were known human languages. Again, short answer, long discussion. I don't think those gifts are for today. We can talk more about that. But even if they are for today, the way that people exercise them today is very different than the way that the Scripture describes them. And so those would be things to stay away from. But the point here in this section is you have a gift. Every single believer has a gift. And you're at this church in particular to use that gift to benefit the body. Lastly, Paul gives, in the last section of this chapter, he gives this wonderful illustration. What what does this look like? It's called the body of Christ. He states it in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Again, Paul's saying the body of Christ is a beautiful unity in diversity, right? All these different parts, but one body. All these different backgrounds, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, yet all have drank from one spirit and are one body in Christ. Paul gives a few of the implications of this in the verses that follow. The first implication is this. Because everyone is a part of the body, no one is inferior. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, oh, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So what's Paul saying? No one's inferior. No one's insignificant. Everybody has a part to play. I mean, it's almost funny, right? He kind of gives it like if the foot should say all of a sudden like, well, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of this body. It's like, well, then your body can never move. Or if your ear all of a sudden said like, I'm not an eye, like, and that's the most important. I'm not an, even an eye. It's like, well, then where would your sense of hearing be if all these body parts started giving up because they weren't one another? How about you? I mean, I think sometimes we're like, but I'm not like so-and-so who does this. Or I can't teach like this person. Or I can't counsel like this person. Or I don't know how to prepare a meal like this person. It's like, stop it. 
God has given you a gift. And you are a gift to this church. He specifically chose a gift just for you. Christ died specifically for you, and the Spirit gave you the gift specifically for you to be used in this church. I was talking to a friend this week, and they were talking to a friend of theirs who's gotten a little older, and they're not able to serve in the ways that they used to serve. And this person said something along the lines of like, well, all I can do now is have people over for meals and pray for them. I was like, all you can do? It's like if everyone in the church, if all they did was have people over for meals and pray for them, this would be an amazing church. Like, that's a wonderful gift. Like, that's not to be looked down on at all. Uh, I mentioned this a couple of years back, but Penelope has this binder, and on the front of the binder it says, be you, do you, for you. And I'm like, okay, let's think about that. Let's modify it a little bit. Be you, do you, for Christ. I like that. But we should actually, as believers, when we're saved, God has done something specific in us. And the Spirit has given each one of us a particular gift. So by all means, be you. Don't be somebody else. You don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to be a counselor. You don't have to be any. Be you. And do you. Do the gift that God gave to you. Don't worry about somebody else's gift. Don't feel threatened because you don't have such and such a gift or you want this. No, be you, do you for this body and everything will work out just fine. So that's on the one hand. There's no inferiority in the body of Christ. And on the flip side, then there's no superiority in the body of Christ either. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. So why is God doing it this way? But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, here's the reason, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. There is no one in this church who can look at anyone else in this church and say, I have no need of you. We all need each other. Every one of us needs every other one of us for the body to function correctly. I think sometimes we say, I have no need of you because we overestimate our own importance. Like, I've got this figured out. Like, I, I am God's gift to the church. That's right. If more people were like me, then this church would be great. But on the other side, I think sometimes we underestimate our need for others. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Like, yes, we have a personal relationship with Jesus, but that personal relationship with Jesus includes an interpersonal relationship with every other brother and sister in this church. The body of Christ is a living organism. You start removing parts of the body and things break down. So we shouldn't have the attitude like, oh, I know my theology. The theology is most important, so I don't need the rest of you. Like, you know your theology, okay. Do you know how to compassionately counsel someone with that theology when they're in need? 
you know how to help a special needs child understand the gospel? Do you know how to make a meal for someone when they're sick? Do you know how to build a tree into a kid's Sunday school room? We need the whole body. Every individual member serving together. God made each of us different so that we would actually have unity. That we would never look at each other and think like, well, I don't need you, or you should be like me, or I need to be like you. No, that we should actually have a great appreciation for one another. To the point where if one suffers, all suffer. And this is a great illustration, right? I mean, you stub your toe, how does your whole body respond, right? It's like everything clenches up. Like you don't stub your toe and the rest of your body's like, thinks to be you, like later toe. It's like, no, your whole body responds. In the same way, if, you, if you're an artist and someone compliments your work, you don't go like, look at that hand again, that glory hog. That hand is trying to get all the credit for everything again. It's like, no, your whole person rejoices when like your piece of art is complimented. And that's how it should be. When someone does something, when you hear like, oh, I love that lesson someone taught, sometimes, right, those thoughts in our mind are like, well, what does that say about me? When our thoughts should be like, praise the Lord. The body's working. People are being blessed. People are using their gift. It's the way it's supposed to be. I don't need to feel threatened. I can rejoice when the body is functioning rightly. We'll close just with this last exhortation that Paul gives us in verses 27 to 31. This verse 27 is meant to astound you. He says, you are the body of Christ. You are the way that God is displaying his son in the world. You. Like that should make us at the same time incredibly excited and incredibly humbled. But it's true. You are the body of Christ. And God has appointed in the church all of these different roles. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and then bringing up the rear, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No, of course not. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Like, there's everybody's different for a reason. And he says in verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, I don't think Paul is categorizing gifts like this one's better than another one, because he just said every single gift is indispensable. I think what he's saying is focus on using your gift in a way that will benefit the most people and bring the most glory to Christ. So practically, what does that mean? It means that if you're here, you have a gift. And not just a general gift for the church in general, but a particular gift for this church. So the first question is, do you believe that? One person believes that. I sound like Larry. <laughs> do you believe that? Yes. All right, then are you using that gift to bless the body? You might ask the question, how do I know what gift I have? Well, I'd say just start serving, and you'll figure it out, right? Don't take a test and then wait, you know, and try to figure it out for a month. Just go start serving. 
Go to valleybible.org serve. Go out. There's a wall out here. You can go. And it has all the different ministries at the church and all the different needs that are there. Go today. Start serving today. And don't go with the expectation that the first thing I get into, that it's going to be this amazing experience. Maybe it will be, and you'll have found your gift. But it might be you start serving, you're like, this is not for me. Then what do you do? Go pick another tag off the wall and do that one. And then eventually, I guarantee you, God will direct you to the gift that you have in the way that it's meant to bless the church. Beloved, you are the body of Christ. Each of you, individually, coming together to form his body. You have a gift. Use it to serve others and stay focused on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that when you save us, you're not just punching our ticket to heaven. You're doing so much more than that. You're changing our hearts from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. From a heart that was unfeeling and uncompassionate to others to one that becomes like our Savior, where we want to love and serve the way that he does. You also, by your Spirit, you give us each a particular gift. And your Son puts us in a particular ministry to use that gift. And you empower the whole process. Father, I pray that you would help us to believe that first, and then help each one of us to live that out. Lord, there's too many churches where, again, the whole slogan of 20% of the people do 80% of the work, we don't want that here. Not because it's, you know, just the wrong thing to do, but we don't want it here because it's not going to benefit one another, and it's not going to glorify you the way it should. So, Lord, may we see every single member of Valley Bible Church using the gift that the Spirit's given them to bless this body for the common good. And may your Son be glorified as a result. Continue to use this church. We pray this all in Christ's name.